You're listening to the Screeners Podcast Network. Hi, everyone, and welcome to a special supplemental edition of the Next Trek Podcast. Tonight, Chris and I are really excited to bring to you an interview we just had with Keith DeCandido, a Star Trek author and author of many innumerable tie-in fiction titles, including Spider-Man, Buffy, Young Hercules, Firefly, Supernatural, Farscape, Sleepy Hollow, Doctor Who, and many others, which he'll name uh, many others on this on this podcast, more than I even knew, and I just did research on him. So we, uh, we sat down with him and we got a chance to talk about just what it's what uh, being a Star Trek author is is like, what the process of that is, as well as his thoughts on Star Trek Discovery. As of this airing, we or as of this recording, we had just done our review of uh, episode four of Star Trek Discovery: The Butcher's Knife Cares Not for the Lamb's Cry, and so that's about where we are in terms of anything we refer to. There's no spoilers for anything after that. But uh, we get some really great insight on just what the spirit of Star Trek is, you know, what to say maybe to some people who have a problem with Discovery. But I'm going to let Keith say more of that to you than, than I will here. We really hope you enjoy this. Stay tuned. Well, uh, we'll welcome Keith DeCandido to, our, uh, to the Next Trek podcast. We're really excited to have you here. Thank you very much. It's good to be here. So we've, uh, we're just going to get this kind of kicked off. And, and like I said before, we want this to sort of be a, a natural discussion. Um, we, my first big thing that I, I really want to get into is, is not, not to get too David, not to get too David Copperfield on you or to uh, like going, you know, to the back of the beginning of your life, but just, you know, can you give us a, a sense of, of who you are, where you grew up and how you got into writing? Um, well, I, uh, I was, I was uh, born in New York city. Um, 48 years ago, um, the uh, and never left. Uh, that's not true. I lived in in New Jersey for six months at one point, but I try not to think about that. Um, <laughs> I've I've been a New Yorker all my life. I've also been a Star Trek fan all my life. Uh, it's all my parents' fault. They actually they watched um, Star Trek in first run uh, when it was on. Uh, I was born in April of 1969, which means. Uh, only one episode of the original series actually aired in my lifetime, and that was Turnabout Intruder. God help us. Oh, I'm sorry um, about that. Well, and that only because it was delayed. The original airing of it was preempted uh, because uh, Dwight Eisenhower died. So mm. that episode wasn't actually aired for the first time until June. Um, but I grew up watching, in New York City, there's a, uh, at the time was an independent station. It is now their CW affiliate, Channel 11. Uh, aired Star Trek every weeknight at six o'clock. And that was, that was our evening. We, you know, my parents would come home from work. We'd sit and watch Star Trek at six and then we'd have dinner at seven. This was, this was what we did every night. So <laughs> I grew up with that. Um, I also grew up reading a lot of other science fiction. Um, my earliest uh, stuff that my parents gave me to read included uh, The Hobbit by, by J.R.L. Tolkien. Uh, Ursula K. Le Guin's Earthsea Trilogy, um, Robert Heinlein's uh, YA books, and also P.G. Woodhouse's Jeeves and Worcester Stories, which pretty much is me in a nutshell right there. So, wow. um, so it, was, it was kind of inevitable that I would wind up getting involved in, in writing this stuff. Uh, I always wanted to write. 
I, the first thing I wrote was when I was six years old. It was this lovely little thing I did on construction paper called Reflections in My Mirror. Uh, I still have it. Uh, it's terrible. And uh, <laughs> I was six years old. Yeah. yeah. No, um, no judgment. No judgment. Yeah. Yeah. So, uh, but it was, uh, that was, that was, and I always wanted to write. And I, I wrote in high school. I, I worked for uh, the school newspaper there. I worked as both a writer and an editor for the paper at Fordham University. I was there. And that was the name of it. It was called The Paper. Lowercase <laughs> T, lowercase P, The Paper. Uh, and I was the arts editor there. And that was when I discovered editing as a possible um, career because it's really hard to make a living as a writer when you're starting out. Um, it's actually hard to make a living as a writer even when you're long established. So uh, editing was very useful when I first graduated college because that was a job I could get that would actually pay me a salary and give me health insurance and give me a chance to build my writing career. And eight years later, I was able to go freelance. Um, and I still do editing on a freelance basis uh, here and there. Um, I, I like editing. It's actually quite a lot of fun. And it's a nice break from, from writing that's still creative. Um, I don't do as much of it as I used to, although I have edited a bunch of different uh, anthologies, including some stuff for the Star Trek line. And I also edited uh, the Star Trek ebook line. Uh, they, right. had, they had a monthly ebook series that ran from 2000 to 2008. Is that the uh, Starfleet Corps of Engineers? Yes. Yep. Yes. Plus, we did two other uh, we did two other miniseries, uh, the Mirror Anarchy miniseries yep. that came out for the uh, 40th anniversary of the original series, and then also the Slings and Arrows Next Generation right. miniseries uh, for the uh, that was 2007. So that was the 20th anniversary of uh, of Next Gen. It was that that was a lead up to First Contact, wasn't that? Yeah. Yep. Well, I I did that because, and I'd actually been trying to uh, pitch something like that for a while. LaForge mentioned in First Contact that the Enterprise E had been out uh, of dry dock for a year. Right. And no tie-in fiction did that year. Hmm. You know, every piece of tie-in fiction took that involved the Enterprise E took place after First Contact. There was a whole year there. Yeah, right. And, and it was a year when there was a lot of crap going on. And... Uh, you know, mostly, you know, that we saw in Deep Space Nine. That, right. And the, but there was all sorts of stuff that, that could have affected the Enterprise in one way or the other, not to mention um, uh, one thing that, uh, two things that directly affected the characters themselves. One was Tom Riker joining the Maquis. Right. And one was Loxana Troy's pregnancy. And these are things that would have direct, a direct impact on Will Riker and Daniel Troy. So, sure. Let alone the setup for all of the, you know, the, we've got, you know, Hawk who comes on to First Contact and, and things like right. that. Yeah, all of those things. I I actually just reread that over the summer. I I had forgotten a little bit about that, but I, I was rereading those kind of in my my big lead up to try and get back into Star Trek fiction. I had I had left it for a little while, and then reread um, a whole slew of it, and then got into um, got into the the, the a, a time two series, which which you contributed right. to, and and all that. Yeah, so I I just reread that series. It's great. Nice. I had fun with that. That was the, the only, the one uh, piece of fiction that did take place during that time period of significance was the Section 31 novel Rogue by right. Ed Nagels and Michael Martin, which was done specifically to give Hawk a backstory. And, and we made use of that uh, since then was also. Oh, that's right. That's true. Yeah, that's right. Uh, well, so getting into just the Star Trek, how, how did you break into Star Trek uh, fiction? I started out doing uh, little bits of, little bits of uh, freelance work here and there. Uh, I was friends with John Ordover, who yep. from 1993 until about 2004 was one of the editors of Star Trek Fiction at Simon & Schuster. 
And um, I knew him from when he was working at Torbooks. And he basically threw some freelance work at me here and there, some research. Uh, so I did some work on the Star Trek Omnipedia that came out on CD-ROM. I think uh, I had that. Cover yep. copy. Uh, and then after I had sold uh, a few novels, I'd written a Spider-Man novel yep. called Venom's Wrath. I'd written uh, two Young Hercules novels. Uh, starring some obscure young kid named Ryan Gosling, who I always thought, you know, might have right. a career ahead of someday, you know. Um, and, uh, and I did a Buffy the Vampire Slayer novel. After having done four novels, then John said, okay, pitch me a Star Trek novel. So I did. He rejected it. And, <laughs> um, and then he said, hey, I just got the script. This is in 1999. I just got the script for the last episode of Deep Space Nine. In it, Worf becomes Federation ambassador to the Klingon Empire. He knew Worf was my favorite, one of my two favorite characters in Star Trek, the other being Kira. And he said, you want to write the first Ambassador Worf novel? And I said the same thing I say when any editor says, hey, want to write this novel? I say, <laughs> yes, and figure out how later. Sure. <laughs> um, that led to Diplomatic Implausibility, which was my first, uh, which was the first Star Trek novel I was contracted to do. First uh, Star Trek fiction, rather. I was contracted to do. It was the third thing to come out um after uh after i got that contract i was then approached by jeff marriott who was the editor of of the star trek comics for wildstorm when they picked up the license and i was one of the people he approached uh to pitch something and i pitched the comic book for chance to dream which actually came out at the end of 99 and then uh we started up the core of engineer series and i did one of the first ones for that as well but that was that was a ridiculous like that we went from concept to e to the public, the first three ebooks being published in about seven and a half seconds. That was oh wow. <laughs> Basically, the 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 Core of Engineers series was started to tie into uh, Microsoft was releasing the MS Word program that yeah. as an ebook reader on your computer. This was in the summer of two thousand, and they wanted something unique to them. You know, an, an ebook original series connected to Star Trek to tie into it. So over a weekend, John and I created the Core of Engineers. Uh, and then Dean Wesley Smith and I and Christy Golden wrote the first three ebooks in, in about, like I said, seven and a half seconds. And, um, and that's how that got started. And then I, and then, uh, when it became, when it went to a full series after that, John asked me to take over the editorial reign since I co-created it with him. So. That's, that's fantastic. And actually that leads right into something I've, I've really been curious about for a while. So you're talking about all these collaborations, right? You've got these, uh -huh. the series of, of Star the Corps of Engineers, or um, I mentioned the, the a Time 2 series and then the relaunches after, after Nemesis and stuff like that. How does that even, can you get into how that works? Is it just a couple guys sitting in a room or is it a, a, a writer's room, like a show? What do you, what's that uh, like? It, it's generally editorially driven. Um, in that it starts with the editor, whether it's John Ordover who conceived the Time 2 series or Marco Palmieri who conceived the Deep Space Nine post-finale fiction um, and, or whomever. Uh, Margaret Clark is the one who handled the, the post-Nemesis Next Generation fiction after, after uh, we finished the Time 2. So it, it, it usually starts with the editor and then they pick the writers and, and work out the stories and such. Um, some of them are, are an ongoing process. Like with Core of Engineers, it was very much like a TV show because we were putting out a book every month. Right. And, um, and you know, I would take pitches from our writers and, and guide them in one direction or another. And maybe, you know, they might have to change something because, well, okay, we're, yes, but we're doing this in another book. So can you include that in there and this and that? And it, it actually worked out great. It was, it was a wonderful, wonderful collaboration among the group of us. Um, you know, I felt very much like a TV show when I was yeah. doing that. Um, 
and now I know why why TV showrunners don't actually you know sleep. But um, <laughs> the uh, and you some, and some of them, like one of my favorite stories to cut to come out of um, there, there were two things in particular that we did that where we took advantage of, of the fact that we were a monthly series. One one was they both worked out well for the series. What one was deliberate and one was not deliberate. Um, in uh, Terry Osborne had had written a story called Malfictorum which was, a, which she wanted to do a locked room murder mystery in the 24th century. And uh, so we did that. And then the, the ebook that was coming out before hers was written by David Mack. For various reasons relating to their personal deadlines, Terry had actually written her story before David had written his, uh, because Dave had something else he had to finish up first. So I asked Dave uh, to set the, the, the locked room murder mystery that Terry was writing uh, involved a security guard who's killed on page two, basically. Because <laughs> uh, that, that's what sets up the story. So I asked Dave to feature the same character, Caetano, in his ebook. And Dave has a reputation for killing characters off. Yes, he does. Yeah. To be fair, he's earned. And um, Dave, I should I should add, is one of my best friends. He, uh, we, we were both in each other's wedding parties. Oh man. Um, yeah, he's uh, he he and I are, are very close friends. He's going to be coming over uh, to my house for a thing we're doing on Saturday. You know, he's. He's, uh, he and I are very close friends, so we talk all the time. Um, and I, I told him, can you feature Caetano in here and make us think you're going to kill him? Because everyone's going to assume, hey, Dave wrote this, so he's going to die. And then nice. have him survive. And then one month later, we're going to kill him on page two. Just Sweet. Oh, so cool. So uh, the other one was less deliberate. Uh, Ilsa Bick wrote a two-part story that teamed Dr. Lenz and Dr. Bashir. Dr. Lenz was the character who was established as the person who was valedictorian to Bashir salutatorian. Yeah. And they later established that Bashir was genetically engineered. Right. And what we established in the Corps of Engineers series was that uh, in the height of Dominion paranoia, Starfleet decided that, well, hey, she beat the genetically enhanced guy. There must be something weird about her. And she was subject to this major investigation, which revealed that she was not, in fact, a founder. She was just really a doctor. And... Um, but that made her kind of bitter toward Bashir. Um, and they wind up getting teamed up on this adventure. And Ilsa and I had talked about the possibility of in the future uh, having Lens become pregnant because, as Ilsa put it, she would make the worst mother ever. <laughs> uh, and while you wouldn't want that in real life for a story, that's great. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, good you know, conflict. You do things to your characters that you would never want to deal with in your life. <laughs> um, and so we had talked about it, and then Elsa turns in wounds, and she ends it with, she puts an apology in the cover letter, and it turns out she had Lens be pregnant at the end of it. And I'm like, oh. <laughs> okay. First, I get in touch with CDS because the, the, the licensing people was like, uh, look, um, this wasn't in the outline, but we'd really like Lens to be pregnant now. Is that okay? Yeah. Then I had to send an email to Will Leisner. William Leisner wrote the next one after Wolves, yeah. which also featured headlines in a strong supporting role in it, and said, Bill, story's great, love it. You gotta do a major rewrite on it, however, <laughs> and it's not your fault. Um, because Lens is pregnant now. And Will's like, uh-huh. <laughs> this wound up working out great because the the Lens being pregnant added a, a, like 800% more poignancy to, to what Lens was going through in that particular story. Um, so it all worked out beautifully. Um, but that was not what we had originally intended. Uh, but that's part of the fun of, of that process. Um, you know, we did something similar to 
again involving Dave uh, in a time to um, we had uh, my, my job with the time two series was to keep track of the enterprise crew because okay. we're doing for those for the people listening who haven't read it the time two series came out in 2004 and it was nine books chronicling the year leading up to star trek nemesis it was basically setting the movie up setting up the post nemesis fiction and um uh and doing that so uh that that was what we were we were going for there and uh to set everything up and we i was my job was to keep track of the crew we had a lot of security guards uh going through this <laughs> and many of them were getting killed because well yep. security guards on the enterprise and so there was one bob greenberger had one guy uh named edward carmona who was actually named after somebody bob had worked with in DC comics and bob uh, carmona's job was to guard picard throughout bob's two books yeah and he survived. He kept the card alive. He kept himself alive. And then in Dave's book, in, in A Time to Kill, <laughs> he has Carmona sitting in a cafe having lunch and the building gets blown. <laughs> the, the, the punchline to this is years later, uh, Dave and I are at a party being thrown by Tor.com and we meet Edward Carmona, the real Edward Carmona. Oh. I don't think he, I don't know if he still works at DC. I don't remember now, but that he, he, he introduced himself to me and, to me and Dave and said, hi, you killed me. <laughs> well, that's a plus. And, and he read honestly, the book. There you go. I'm not based on a real person at all. I don't think Bob ever told him. So, um, which is hilarious considering that we talked all the time. Uh, at the time we were doing this, Bob still lived in New York. He's in Maryland now, but yeah. uh, and and Dave and I still live in New York. And the three of us had lunch every week uh, while we were while we were writing our respective books and bouncing ideas off each other and. Uh, it really helped make those the last five books in the series much stronger uh, because we were we were really you know feeding off each other on that. So that that collaborative process was really actually helpful. Oh yeah, it was great. Do you do you like that, or are you more into you know the standalone? I mean, it seems like you do enjoy that, but it, but is standalone a little bit easier because you're not beholden to other people, or it, it, they both have their benefits and their and their their drawbacks. I've been lucky the collaborative projects I've done have been with people who have been easy to work with and who uh, uh, who have who have played well with others, as it were. Uh, I have heard horror stories of other projects where that didn't happen, but uh, they have not happened to me. So I've been I've been lucky in that. Um, but you know, and and most most of the projects I've done have been with people who are also friends as well as colleagues. Um, so that 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 was part of what you know I was trying to, to go for. The Mirror Anarchy series was was another example. I specifically picked people because I thought they would be right for the particular story they were doing, but also because I wanted to work with them. They were all people yeah. I've worked with anyway, uh, at least once or twice. But um, I wanted, but also I was trying to get people who were suited to the particular TOS time period that they were working in, and that was that was that's the gold standard for for this kind of thing because uh, the emails we were throwing back and forth to each other were hilarious um <laughs> and uh, only occasionally staying on topic <laughs> that, that describes but, uh, our podcast pretty well yes yeah but the miniseries came out great uh Mir mirror anarchy is one of the things i'm proudest of of all the editorial things i've done yeah. great and that's it's one I'm, I'm have not gotten to in my in my catch-up reading yet but but it's on the list the long list cool um, so bringing back even to just, you know, starting with diplomatic implausibility, you, you pretty much stayed, I mean, not exclusively, but pretty largely in, in Klingon territory with, uh, with your writing. Yeah. What drew you there? I mean, other than you said it's your favorite, why, why are they your favorite? Um, 
I have been, I have loved Klingons pretty much since the first time I saw Day of the Dove as a little kid um, and thought, ooh, Kang's cool. Yeah. Um, I, I was, I was young, so really didn't go beyond that. <laughs> but um, I, I, I've, I've always been fascinated by the Klingon characters and the Klingon culture. A lot of it has to do with uh, Michael Ansara and John Colicos, who brought sure. tremendous uh, complexity and gravitas to the roles of Kor and Kang. I mean, Kang in particular, that was somebody who stood, who was, if, if you've got another ship captain who's, who's your antagonist, he's got to be worthy of him. Right. And basically, he has to be, you know, the, the Klingon equivalent of Kirk for all intents and purposes. And he was, you know, he was, he was a worthy opponent. Um, and, and he's got that amazing voice. <laughs> yep. Oh, yeah. And, you know, I mean, one of my all-time favorite moments in all of Star Trek is, we need no urging to hate humans. <laughs> Uh, and and slapping Kirk on the back hard enough that yeah. Shatner's stumbled forward five feet. You know, <laughs> uh, that and 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 Blood Oath is one of my favorite uh, Deep Space Nine episodes. Oh yeah. Too. Um, the uh, so yeah that I, I've just and and the way the the culture developed on the various spinoffs uh, I thought was really fascinating. Um, my, my most recent, uh, piece of, of Star Trek fiction was a coffee table book that came out in 2014 called The Klingon Art of War. Oh yeah. Um, in fact, I am told, I, I haven't been able to make it out in the screen grabs and I haven't been keeping up with it. Uh, I'm told that the, the after Trek, uh, show they've been doing after discovery, there's a copy of The Klingon Art of War on the bookshelf behind the book, which is really kind of Oh, I haven't realized. I have not been able to verify this, but, um, Wow. Uh, but I do know that the writers of Discovery are uh, people who are aware of the various tie-in fiction, partly because one of the tie-in authors is on the writing staff. Yeah, she uh, is, yeah. Kirsten Beyer, uh, and, and she's kind of the, the, the font, of, font of all Trek knowledge on the staff, from what I've, what I've led to understand. And, um, and so they're aware of you know, all that stuff. And, and that's one of the things that's been interesting, me, interesting me, uh, to me on Discovery is, is the Klingon politics as well. So. Yeah, I mean, and that's it's actually a pretty big bone of contention in Discovery right now. Is is we were talking about that on our last episode, um, and with our guest who was basically just you know bored at the moment they got into the Klingon politics in there, and and I'm I'm pretty pretty much enjoying it. Um, they're they're definitely trying to go the the Game of Thrones route. It seems like How, how's that striking you? I, my issue with it is, and I've I've been reviewing each episode of Discovery as they come out on Tor.com. I review yep. them on Monday morning. Uh, so I've reviewed each of the first four episodes, and uh, my my biggest issue with it is doing it all in Klingon. Yep, mm-hmm. which is fine for a few sentences. Um, I really think they'd be better off just having them speak English. You know, we we yes, among themselves they speak Klingon. Fine. Uh, the problem is it it handicaps the actors. Uh, oh man, and, yeah, yeah, uh, some more than others, but, but you know, I mean, in particular. Uh, um, Chris, uh, uh, Chris Obey or Obi, yep. Yeah, who played uh, Takovma, who's yep. an excellent actor, uh, was was completely uh, tied up in knots because he had to wrap his tongue around a language that doesn't actually exist. You see right. this actually, to, 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 to do an old tiny Star Trek example, William Shatner was in a movie that was done entirely in Esperanto called Incubus back in 1966. Oh, wow. Um, and I watched it uh, as part of a, a special thing I was doing of... of 2016 was the 50th anniversary, not only of the original series, but also of the Adam West Batman. And I was, oh, yeah. I was doing rewatches of both those TV shows on, on Tor.com and reviewing them. 
And so for the last week of 2016, I, I reviewed some uh, ancillary stuff that was related to both one or the other or both. And one of the things I did was Incubus. And watching it, you could see the actors were, were completely bumfuzzled by the fact that they had to tie their tongues around a language they didn't know and right. that nobody speaks. Right. And I'm seeing the same problem on Discovery is that and, and it's, the dialogue is labored and it makes it harder for them to express themselves. And, you know, and they're already limited because they've got, you know, makeup piled all over them, which is, you know, right. in any form, Klingon makeup has always been deaf on facial expressions, uh, whether, whether it was, you know, the, the, the first ridges that Mark Leonard wore back in 1979, all the way you know, through to Michael Dorn. Morph doesn't smile not because of a character choice, but because of Michael. In the first season, if, if Michael Dorn smiled, his makeup. You know? Right, right. Um, so that you ha you have to you, you depend on your voice and your eyes, uh, and when you've got somebody like you know like Michael Dorn or like JG Hertzler or like Michael and Sarah, who's got such right. a great voice, then it works. But if they have to be, you know. Wrapping their lips around Klingon the whole time, it, it takes the wind out of the sails, and and it's too bad because there's some interesting stuff going on there, and it's being neutered uh, by mm. the insistence on using the Klingon language so much. Having said that, I'm glad they're actually using the Klingon language and not just you know pulling words out of their ass like they were doing uh, in the later parts of the spinoffs. Yeah, right. Well, and then yeah, we you know it's it's all they took the time to invent it in, around Star Trek Three. You might as well just yeah. yeah. do something with it. Yeah, Mark Mark, Mark put a lot of work into that. <laughs> yeah, uh, yeah, yeah. I feel yeah. It's not just for you know random people on the internet now. It's it's actually being used. Um, well, I, and I'm I'm loving. I really like the politics of it overall. I like where it's where they're going with um, you know this sort of conspiracy. Which it, man, I mean, it looks like they're they're 100 just going the Game of Thrones route. We're going we're getting the secret matriarchs of the House of Mokai or, or whatever it is. We're going these weird places. Um, are these things? You know, are they from canon in, in any way? I mean, I know House of Mokai is, but are they things that, that you brought up or are they just really going going off uh, on their own? There's not a hell of a lot that's been established, really, yeah. uh, about Klingon history in particular. Um, you know, we know we know what has happened in, you know, Klingon history in, to some extent, in the 22nd century on Enterprise, although not that much. No. Uh, and... Um, you know, just one thing Discovery has established is that after the augment virus hit that turned a bunch of them into smooth-headed human-looking guys, they pretty much stayed out of galactic politics for the next yeah. year. Um, which kind of makes sense, given what happened there. Sure, but, that's um, embarrassing. Yeah. And, um, but beyond that, I mean, uh, aside from the, the, the history that was unfolding before our eyes on Next Generation and Space Nine in particular... We don't know that much about Klingon history. There's bits and pieces here and there, but just, you know, they're, they're, they're stories and we don't know how exaggerated they are because we know how Klingons love to exaggerate their stories. So uh, th there's, there's a lot of wiggle room for them to play with there. There's, there's, there's stuff that, you know, individual incidents that have been mentioned and there's stuff that, you know, tie-in writers like me and like John M. Ford and like Michael Jen Friedman and, and others have put in our various uh, novels. John Jackson Miller also uh, more recently in the Prey trilogy. Uh, where we've established some stuff, but that's, that's, they're not beholden to that. Sure. Uh, so it's, it's Klingon history in general and in this era in particular is, is completely wide open. So they can, you know, and, and what they're doing so far, at least uh, to, to my uh, rather practiced eye in terms of, of Klingon stuff, it's, they aren't doing anything that, they're not doing anything that's inconsistent with what's already been established, which is not really that much. 
So sure. especially in this time period. So well, it's interesting to me so far, and, and Chris, I think could could speak to this as as well. Um, I I keep thinking we don't get as much of a discussion of of honor. The the Klingons we see, you know, Worf and and you know, going into yeah, Martok and, and lots of others in Galron, you know, they are so preoccupied with honor. Worf in particular is is that? Do you think they're aiming at that's that's for later Klingons? That's after they've all reunited and stuff like that, or is this? Maybe. You know, there there's but yeah, and and. and this is we're talking a time period that's you know a hundred years before uh, the Klingon, before uh, Worf and Martok and Gower right. and, and, um, and even then you know it, it's not something that every single Klingon was preoccupied with. Gowron certainly wasn't always. Sure, that's true. Um, neither was Duras. Uh, neither was Kimpek. You know, he was uh, political. Yeah, you know, Worf had the advantage of not growing up in the Klingon Empire, so he didn't have to make the compromises that everyday life requires. You know. Um, sure. So he could afford to be, uh, you know, the perfect Klingon in a way that people who actually lived in the Empire couldn't. couldn't. Um, which is one of the things that was fascinating about the character. Uh, sure. And, and watching him develop and watching him be forced to actually address those compromises. Uh, you know, when he got kicked out of the Empire twice. <laughs> but <laughs> um, the, but uh, I, I, I think that's certainly one possibility is that they're trying to, you know, sow the seeds for how the Klingons, we know the Klingons are going to develop a hundred years hence uh, with what they're doing here. Uh, they're also setting up the tension, you know, Erin Diversity established that there have been tensions uh, prior to that. And there, there was the Battle of Donna 2-5 that was mentioned in both The Trouble with Troubles and in, uh, I think, the second episode of Discovery. Um, so, you know, so uh, I, I think, yeah, they're trying to fit it in with, with what has been established. We'll see. I, you know, we've still got 10 episodes or something to go. Sure. Uh, nine or 10 as of, as of this recording, as they've only been before. Yep. Um, and I, I've heard enough from, uh, as I mentioned, uh, David Mack is one of my closest friends. He hasn't actually told me anything because he's not allowed to, but uh, he has been working with the Discovery Writers Room. Um, sure. Because he just he just put hours. out, yeah. Uh, he he's been consulting very closely with Kirsten and the rest of the staff. Uh, so is Dayton Ward, who's who's written the second one. And from what they tell me, he said they they both have told me that while well, not giving specifics, is that these the, the writers of this show know what they were saying, uh, and that there is a plan, and that everything will make sense by the end of the season. Sure. Um, I hope they're right. <laughs> yeah. So far, though, the you know the 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 revelation. The answers to the questions that we've gotten so far have been good ones, in my opinion. So we'll can, see. Can you can you give some specifics? What are you what are you thinking of? Uh, well, for example, uh, you know what the tardigrade was. Yep. Uh, from you know, I mean, the big scary monster in episode three, which turned out in episode four to actually be a, a creature who was enslaved, um, which I hope they do more with. But that that's a very Star Trek thing, anyway. That's right sure. out of you know Arena and Devil in the Dark so on um and charlie x you know the and Trelane, you know the the, the, yep. the the big scary monster is not in fact always a big scary monster sometimes it is sometimes it's a doomsday machine <laughs> sometimes it's a giant amoeba yep. but sometimes it's a little kid who just wants somebody to play with or or you know a mother protecting her eggs or whatever so um i like that um you know uh, i've i've I, i've seen one complaint from several people saying that well you know starfleet officers would never disobey orders and mutiny like that and to which my answer is, did you watch the Menagerie? Yeah. Um, yep. th- th- I mean, honestly, I, when I did my rewatch, I, I had I never really thought about it until I was sitting down watching the Menagerie again. Spock 
Yes, not only did he violate the only general order that carries the death penalty, he also assaulted a couple of Starfleet officers, kidnapped <laughs> the Starfleet captain, Yep. Um, forged orders. <laughs> yep. Uh, I mean, even if, even if they got him off the hook for general order, uh, what is it, seven, four? I, it, one, or, yeah, seven, I think it's seven. Yeah, yeah. seven. Um, uh, I'm, I'm a writer, I'm bad with numbers. <laughs> the, um, even if he violated that, there's all these other Starfleet regulations he violated too, and there should be consequences, and there are no consequences for that, at least. You know, Burnham, you know, got her ass thrown in jail and her rank taken away, which is exactly what, and, Honestly, that was my favorite thing about the Battle of the Binary Stars second episode, which was somebody in Star Trek breaks the rules, does something mavericky, and there's actual consequences for it. Yep. Yeah. Which is such a welcome change after you know, I, I you disobeyed orders, but we're going to give you your shit back anyway. We're just going to oh, demote you a little bit. Keep your rank. You know. Yep. Spock did it. Data did it. You know. It's like really, guys. Yeah. So that that I I like see I, I I'm I'm enjoying that. Um, it's a, it's really going what what's going on in the Sarek household that he's raising these mutineers? That's that's the big thing. <laughs> yeah, well, well, it also speaks to the serialized way that uh, Discovery is being uh, told. Uh, you know, we're able to actually yeah. pick up. You know, the next day, or you know, if we're following the same story over the period of a season, and that's that's unusual when it comes to Star Trek. So, like you said, you know, Spock didn't see a result because the next episode they were off to some other adventure. Yeah, so, exactly. Yeah, no, that's great. How are you yeah, liking that matter, yeah, with data too? When he stole, when he stole the ship. Yeah, yes. Yeah. How and are you enjoying the series? Should have been let anywhere near a sex, sensitive uh, console ever again after that. <laughs> right. How are you enjoying the serialized uh, concept that we're getting with Discovery? I mean, obviously, that's a trend in television right now. Is yeah. you know that needs to happen in modern TV? How, how do you think Star Trek is is doing being adapted to this? Oh, I mean, it was already doing fine with it when Deep Space Nine did the Dominion War, you know. Sure, this yeah. Is not, this is not the first time Star Trek has done a multi-part story. Um, it's, I think, the longest now, because I think this will, this will surpass the, the end of the Dominion War for the longest single story arc. But yeah. um, there's no reason why it shouldn't work. Uh, I, I do like the fact that we seem to be getting, and especially because they're not releasing it all at once, but doing still doing right. it as a weekly series. I like the fact that, at least so far, each episode has had its own beginning, middle, and end. Yes. Yeah. Um, which I think is very important. I think far too many shows that over-embrace serialization um, folk are focused too much on the big story arc and not enough on the fact that they have to tell a story in 42 minutes. Uh, this can work. Um, the Wire is probably the gold standard for that. Yeah. But um, it's, especially when you're releasing something weekly, I think it, it behooves them to make sure that each each hour tells a story. And so far they're doing that. Um, you know, each 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 story has had a beginning, a middle, and an end, and that's that's for the best. Um, so as long as they keep doing that, as long as they keep maintaining that balance, I think it'll work. I mean, any any one of the great things about Star Trek, and one of the reasons why it has endured for fifty-one years, is because there's no limit on the types of stories you can tell. Mm. Um, you know, for for the last fifty-one years, there has never been a year where there hasn't been some new form of Star Trek story. Whether even even you know when there's been a gap in the in seeing it on screen, there have been novels, there have been comic books, there have been role-playing games, there have been video games, there's been you know online MMORPGs, there have been short stories. Uh, there there has never been, and that's just the official stuff. You right. know, there's also been, you know, the fanfic, the fan films. They, you know, people are constantly coming up with new and interesting Star Trek stories. 
and the facts i mean there there hasn't been a month without a there, there hasn't been a month without a star trek a new star trek novel in it since sometime in the 90s you know yeah um, and uh the that that was when they went i think to monthly was was in the early 90s when uh, uh when next gen was on the air and um the the, the and the there's there's been you know, a steady stream of comic books and all sorts of stuff so there's there's so many different stories you can tell in the star trek universe there's so you know serialization is just a serialized you know one season storyline is just one more possible story of the many that they've already done so yeah that's great yeah sure I, absolutely um well, just let's let's go just open ended. You know, thoughts on the on the show itself. You you mentioned um, a, a lot of small things. Just anything that's standing out as uh, good or bad. Um, what's what you know holding up to the spirit of of Star Trek, or you know, is making you at least making you worry a little bit, even if we're we're assured that it's going to be all right in the end. Um, the, the the issue I have been having is, and and I could give a damn about the fact that the tech doesn't look like what it looked like. Right in the cage we have to get over that in 1964 that looked futuristic in 2017 that looks like somebody's high school uh (laughs) uh play yeah um it it they had to modernize it so it would convincingly look like 300 years from now yeah um as opposed to 300 years from 50 years ago where you know everything on the enterprise looked incredibly sophisticated when 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 (laughs) before aired uh, and looks hilariously primitive <laughs> yeah. um, because nobody anticipated the the march of technology that we got over the last half century. Um, but those problem, you know, the, those complaints uh, would have been cut off at the knees if they had, if they had just jumped the timeline, did what Next Gen did and jumped the timeline another fifty years or seventy years or whatever. Um, you still could have had a conflict with the Klingons. There's enough, you know, enough time can pass so that you can. You know, established that the Klingon Federation Alliance fell apart. They went silent for a hundred years, and then this. Yeah, happened. and then yeah. that would have addressed the the technology problem. As it is, aside from the presence of Sarek, there really isn't anything that is screaming twenty third century to screaming that, is, that it's necessary to be twenty third century here. Yeah, um, that is my biggest complaint, truly, about the show. Yeah. Is is I don't see a reason to keep going back in time. Yeah, I, there's there's no problem, reason. You know, I had that problem with Enterprise too, which which yeah. which. Which was the first Star Trek spinoff to fail in the marketplace. Yeah. Um, and, and, and I don't think it's just because it was a prequel. It was also because, you know, it was bad. But, <laughs> um, but the, I, I, I don't see the value in, in looking backwards. Star Trek has been its best when it looks right. Forward. I had the same problem with the, with the, the bad robot films. Uh, yeah. Yep. But the, and, and I like them, but they keep everything, all, all of Star Trek lately, you know, since, uh, what would that be? 2001 since pre pre enterprise seems, seems to just be focused on pre TOS pre TOS go. Like you said, go 80 years in the future, go a hundred years in the future. It it wipes out honestly, most complaints I think about discovery. Oh no. People would complain anyway. We are. (laughs) Of course, of course. But what they are Um, now, at least uh, the, the, uh, the thing, what I'm loving about it in particular is, um, the quality of the acting on the show is yeah. superb. Uh, Sinequa Martin-Green is phenomenal. Uh, she's mm-hmm. really doing a good job of, of showing some, but you know, eight, she, you look at her and you think this is a human race among Vulcans. Um, the, and, and uh, Jason Isaacs, of course, is, is fantastic. Uh, oh yeah. 
the the breakout character for me is is Doug Jones's Saru, who who is fantastic, um, he, he, remarkably expressive, and a really interesting character. And I'm, 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 yep, he's the one I'm most looking forward to spending time with out of everybody in the cast. Um, I'm I'm still bitter and miserable and angry over uh, Georgia being killed, even though I knew that was oh yeah to happen. Um, you know, she was always intended to be. Oh, she's so good. You know, one of character, but yes, it's Michelle Leal. Yeah. Um, I'm I, I'm I'm still bitter that we never got um a spinoff series from the character she played to get opposite Pierce Brosnan in uh, Tomorrow Never Dies. I just rewatched Tomorrow Never Dies last night, and and I was like, oh my gosh, Michelle Yo, of course, that <laughs> Bond girl. Like, I I how did I forget she was there? Yeah. Oh, so good. that is my favorite Bond movie. I'm not saying it's the best Bond movie. No, it's, but it's great. But I love it's my favorite because of her. Yeah. Yep. Oh. Yeah, yeah awesome. I, absolutely. I, I I'm this whole. Yeah, I I agree with you. The the acting is the acting is fantastic. The, and I think it, it it feels to me like a very much like a Star Trek story. Um, partly there there are two things in particular. One was you know I said earlier about how, about the tardigrade being. You know, starting out as a, as a big scary monster and turning out to be a tragic figure, yeah, uh, which is very Star Trek. But also more fundamentally than that is the line that uh, uh, that Lorca had to Burnham when he was um, trying to recruit her, yeah. which was, "You started this war. Why don't you help me end it?" And that I like that. You know, yeah, I like the fact that it's a science vessel. I like the conflict with um, Lorca's mission to stop the war versus these. You know, Stamets is wanting to go back to science. You know that the the one and only good moment, practically, in Star Trek: Insurrection, which was a terrible movie all along, but there's that one wonderful moment, which is one of my favorite moments, when when uh, the turbo lift doors are about to close on Picard, and he very plaintively just asks, "Remember when we used to be explorers?" Yeah. You know, and and the movie was released at the time. You know, the timeline of the of the film is such that they're in the midst of the Dominion War, so. You know, yeah, the Enterprise is doing diplomatic stuff to to as a as a response to that, and I love that. That's 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 such a Picard moment. Yeah, um, and it, it's one of the things I liked about what Deep Space Nine did with the Dominion War was show was to challenge the oh, Utopia yeah. Federation, um, and and we're we're getting that here too. Um, well, and this is sort of pre Utopia Federation, right? I mean, in 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 well, not really. It, it, it's, well, the original series, we don't get much utopia. They're still on the frontier. Maybe it's just because of where the well, Enterprise yeah, is. Yeah, but I mean, you still have them, you know, like in uh, uh, Let That Be Your Last Battlefield. Oh, racism. That was that oh, thing. True. That happened. <laughs> That's true. Yeah. Um, <laughs> you know, and, and for that matter, you just, you've got a united earth. Yeah, um, right. True. And, and for that, and Day of the Dove also, you know, the whole, the whole idea of, of racial prejudice is something that is just, you know, God, no, we don't do that. What do you right. <laughs> Um The... Uh, yeah, you know, there there is generally a sense that that humanity is in a better place uh, than it was, you know, back in the bad old pre-space sure. day. Um, but uh, you know, and and just the 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 visual shorthand of, uh, you know, the black woman and the Asian guy and the Russian guy and the Scottish yeah. guy all on the same bridge with the two white guys and the twenty-year-old alien. Sure. Uh, and nobody remarks on it. You right. Know, that, that in particular. I mean, yeah, well, okay, they remark about the twenty-year-old alien. God. Yeah, Bones. Bones is still but, struggling with his prejudices a little yes. bit. But um, uh, but aside from that, the uh, you know, the, yeah, and there is progress still has to be made, which which you know, which which is part of what was what was interesting about the show. Uh, yes, later in life, Roddenberry unfortunately went a little too far in that direction, especially in early Next Generation. 
Um, but uh, but even so, the, the the Federation is still very much, even in, in the original series, a very idealistic uh, society, which is is part of the appeal. You know, it's like, look, yes, we're 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 fighting wars with each other and, and beating each other up and burning churches and uh, lynching people and doing all these horrible horrible things, but it's going to get better. Yeah, there there will be a time when you know the the when the fact that that the characters are different colors and and different genders doesn't matter. Mm. The fact that uh, that the fact that she's a woman does not stop Janeway from becoming captain. The fact right. that he's you know the, the Cisco being black, Bashir being an Arab, none of that matters. Yeah, uh, uh, and that's that's the and and you know we're getting that. You know, here too, we've got uh, Georgia. We've got, you know, we've got a, a nicely diverse cast, uh, including a black female lead, which is which is nice. Yeah. And well, and we're... and like I said, Martin Green is just killing it. She's she's really good. I the first time I actually noticed her was on about a ten or ten or so year old episode of Law and Order: Criminal Intent, where she was you know, oh. a minor character uh, in in a you know she was she was a teenager at the time, so and she was playing a, a kid in a private school. Uh, but she was really good. <laughs> um, yeah, and uh, and she was also on a, a TV show I loved called uh, uh, NY22. It was about the the 22nd precinct in New York. It was a very short lived cop show. It was a really good one. Uh, and she was one of the one of the cops on it. It was just it was she's good. Um, I I am not a fan of The Walking Dead, so I haven't seen her. Sure. Well, with with her with Michael Burnham, um, where where are you? I mean, we're, I'm loving what we're seeing of her. She's she's complex. She's you know dealing. She's you know almost um, you know ultra pen, <clears throat> excuse me ultra penitent. Um, you know with with her actions. Yeah, where are you? Like a good redemption story, right? Yeah. I, I, and that doesn't seem like at the moment she's not really angling for redemption yet. I mean, she's still dealing with the fact that she uh, she's not supposed to even be there. Yeah. I think it's 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 super. I don't know. I I love this trajectory. We always have had these perfect crews, you know, and then we've got this this trajectory, which I think is is going to be great. How are you with uh, with her being Spock's half sister? I uh, or stepsister or whatever I adopted. Whatever. I don't have a problem with it in and of itself. Um, I you know I I certainly am not surprised that it hasn't come up before, simply because. Um, it wasn't until Sarek was standing on the freaking ship yeah. that Spock even revealed that Sarek and Amanda were his parents. <laughs> um, you know, uh, he's always been a little tight-fisted about that. Yeah, yeah. Uh, he had to be put in a headlock to reveal that he had to go home to get married. You know, uh, this this is not a guy who was, you know, for that matter, how long? Look how long it was before he even acknowledged Cybok existed. Right. True. Um, there, at least, there was you know some reason for it, but still the. the this is not a guy who is forthcoming about his family. Plus, this series takes place at a time when Spock and Sarek are not on speaking terms. Sure. Um, the uh, having said that, I mean the the show has established that at the very least the two uh, were to some extent uh, raised together because um, Amanda read Lewis Carroll to both of them. Sure. But um, Spock would be, I think, a bit older than her, but still, yeah. Uh, not necessarily. This no. is this is taking place at uh, a couple of years after the Cage. True. So, uh, well, that's true. They and she, kind and she's of the already, second officer, and she was already in line. Yeah, yeah. Oh, true. Yeah, Spock was still the second officer on 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 the Enterprise under under Pike in number one. Uh, yep. That that's something that's actually I, I haven't read it yet, but um, I have it. I have it on my Kindle. 
um, in Dave's novel, Desperate Hours, uh, uh, yeah. it actually teams. That, that was that was because it's not something they can they can easily do on the show, uh, especially because you know Zachary Quinto is expensive. Haha. Yeah. <laughs> and, uh, is, uh, sorry, I had to get that shattered. Oh, totally. Yeah. <laughs> But in, in the novel, you know, actor availability is not a factor, so you can do a team up between the Shenzhou and the Enterprise under Pike. Uh, oh, man, they do. I yeah. didn't know that. Oh, yeah, this yeah. is great. I'm excited. All right, I got to read it. You get Spock Burnham interaction and, and, and stuff like that. Um, wow, okay. And, um, yeah. That's... I don't know why I'm more okay with that in the novel than I like, – I think I actually would be really mad if they if they tried to pull that in the show. I think it would be distracting, I guess, yeah. in the novel – Man, well, I mean that—that's part of the fun of the fiction. I mean, uh, uh, I mean, we, we were talking earlier about the Slings and Arrows miniseries. The, my yeah. contribution to that was basically a Next Generation Deep Space Nine team up, because mm-hmm. this was at a point when Worf was was serving on Deep Space Nine, so it was a chance to get Worf into the story. And I also, more specifically, got to do a Picard and Cisco team, which yeah. only happened once on screen in the first DS Nine episode because you know it's just not something that would have been practical and right after that. Um, but you know, actor availability is irrelevant to pros, so we can do that. And that was that was part of the fun of doing that was putting Cisco and Picard in a in a runabout together, uh, yeah, to to take a journey. Um, and it was it, I had so much fun with that. Um, in particular, I had fun with Cisco getting to tell Picard about the time he decked Q. Yes, oh, it's um, great. Yep, which which is still one of the three or four best Cisco moments for sure. Oh, yeah. <laughs> Absolutely. Uh, anything, anything else on Discovery overall? Anything else you're feeling? How about Lorca himself? Where, where are you on him? We get a lot of, uh, he's not Starfleet. He's not, you know, he's not my captain kind of a thing. He's, he's a, a captain. I mean, yeah. you know, not to put too fine a point on it, but we saw a lot of not entirely together captains uh, on the original series. <laughs> um, you know, I mean, this is the same Starfleet that gave us Ronald Tracy and, yep. and and Matt Decker, although in both of their defense, they've lost their crews before they went Pinky Monkers, but still. Sure. Although I'm not entirely convinced Tracy wasn't already Pinky Monkers. He was, oh, yeah. yeah. Decker, yeah, he was, he was PTSD up the ass. You know, <laughs> that, that's fine. Um, and in fact, I actually, I actually wrote, a st- I wrote the story of how Decker and Kirk first met because they obviously knew each other um, in a, a two-book series I did called The Brave and the Bold. Oh, yeah, yeah. And uh, that, that was a lot of fun because I love Decker. And and I wanted to write Decker, you know, in better Same. times as it works. Um, but I loved I loved what William Wyndham brought to that character, and uh, uh, it was it was fun to write him, you know, just as how he is as a regular captain, um, and and him teaming up with Kirk. The but yeah, I mean, we've got you know we've got Ronald Tracy, we've got Matt Decker, we've got I mean Bob Wesley was okay, but he was kind of a jerk, <laughs> you know. So. Uh, you know, there's 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 plenty of other schmucks in Starfleet at this in this time period. So, uh, um, the and and you know, obviously he's got his own way of doing things. Um, you know, the fact that he didn't even consult Saru on uh, oh, yeah. bringing Burnham on board speaks volumes right there. Um, I'm 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 genuinely curious to see what happens here because, and I like the fact that the captain isn't the main character. In fact, yeah. he may be the antagonist for all we know, um, depending on how this plays out. Sure. And um, I think I think that's a nice. It's just just for it's a nice change, you know. Yeah. The captain has been the main character in every other show 
um, it, it's so ingrained that, it, that one of the complaints I saw online was complaining, we haven't even seen the main character yet. It's like, no, we haven't. <laughs> That's true. The main oh, yeah. character isn't always the white guy. Right. Yeah. Yeah. You know, not seeing, I mean, not seeing Discovery is a legitimate complaint because it's right sure. there in the damn title. Yep. <laughs> yeah. Um, we still haven't met one of the main characters. Uh, I keep forgetting his name, Ash, I think. He's, he's, yeah, I, of... I assume he's going to replace um, uh, Security Chief Dumbass. Oh, yes. true, true, true. Yes. Landry, yeah, yeah. 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 Uh, Landry, who, who, who I, I, I rated as the third <laughs> stupidest death in Star Trek. Yeah. Um, After the, who? The first is Olsen from the 2009 film. Uh, Scott's predecessor is Chief oh, Engineer. Yeah. Who was going to say Denise Crosby? Guy. Yep, yep. Um, and and the second stupidest death was Joe Tormolin from The Naked Time. Got it. Oh yeah. The guy, the guy who's in a hazmat suit and takes his glove <laughs> off and scratches his nose. Yep. <laughs> yep. And then almost walks off the transporter and Spock has to grab him back and say, "No, we have to go through decon." First. Yeah. If anybody in the world deserved <laughs> of a horrible disease. Yeah. It was to that be fair. Long. Their their hazmat suit was made out of like like gauze or something like yeah. that. Yeah. 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 <clears throat> I mean, yeah, it didn't even have a neck seal. You can reach up and scratch. I mean, not that it mattered. Tormolin was sufficiently stupid that he would have broken the neck seal to scratch his own. But, uh, uh, yeah. but yeah, no, Land. I mean, Landry. God, and and and, and you know, she said, you know, this might not work. You don't yeah. know how it's going to take sedation, and we know it's immune to phaser fire. I mean, yeah. Ugh. Yeah. And and what and Rekha Sharma, you know, is such a great actress too. It just was yeah, like deserved better than that. Oh, she did. I know. Um, but I'm assuming that that our our missing opening credits regular is going to show up to replace her. That's just a guess. Yeah, I hadn't thought about somebody's got to be in charge of security. Yeah, yeah. especially on Discovery. Yeah. Well, um, we're we're getting closer to wrapping up. There's one random question I had uh, left, uh, and then getting into um, you know, plugging what you yeah. uh, what you've got. We haven't talked about um, my writing all that much. So. Well, yeah, I know. Uh, that, oh, that's why you're here. Yeah. Um, uh, who's your captain of any of them? Who's your captain? Oh God. Um, can I cheat and say Clag? Um, <laughs> you can almost. You can almost cheat, except he's yours. So. Yeah. yeah. Um, honestly, I, 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 It depends. I don't know. I like. I mean, I grew up with Kirk. Yeah. You know, I. Am abject in my admiration for the character of John Luke Picard. I yeah. am equally abject in my admiration for Benjamin Sisko for completely different reasons, which is part of what I like about him is that he's a completely different type of interesting character. Um, you know, I, I, don't know. I, I, I choosing among those three is really difficult. I, I, you know, and again, I, I'm, I'm particularly fond of Clegg, who I mostly wrote, um, sure. and, and for that matter, Gold on the Corps of Engineers. Uh, who was basically Colonel Potter from Mash, only Jewish? <laughs> that was that. That was what I told everybody who wrote SCE. He was like, you know, that this is how you write gold. He's Colonel Potter with occasional Yiddishism thrown in. Nice. Um, and uh, and for that matter, um, uh, in the post finale uh, Deep Space Nine novels, uh, Kira was running the station. Just uh, going down yeah. off to do with the profit. I got to write her in a couple of uh, one novel and one uh, novella, uh, which was a thrill. I thought she was a great leader, you know, and a perfect yes. person to take over the station. So. I don't know. I, I can't narrow it. Down. <laughs> yeah. All right. <laughs> I'm sorry. sorry. It's like it's like it's like making you choose between your kids. I, I, I often, yeah. Uh, yeah. Yeah. People ask me that too. Like, which which is your favorite novel of the ones you've <laughs> written? Like, really? First of all, there's 53 of them. Second yeah. of all, 
uh, you know, <laughs> I it's I can I I mean there were some I enjoyed writing more than others. Like yeah. one of my favorites that I love that one it, it, when people ask me what was my favorite one to write, it's usually a tie between one of my Buffy the Vampire Slayer novels, which took place in New York in 1977, involved one of the previous Slayers, and uh, the the Trek novel Articles of the Federation. Oh yeah, which is next on my reading list. I actually haven't gotten to ah, it to that one yes. yet. It's, yep. it's, yes, my Star Trek version of the West Wing. Yep. And uh, it was, and, and what 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 I particularly am happy about is how influential Articles has been. Yeah. Non-Bok well, it, it seems to be a major supporting character in the fiction. Yeah. Uh, after that, and um, it seems and, to kind of be the linchpin, you know, leading into the kind of the the next phase of post Nemesis reading. Yeah. 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 And uh, I figured, you know, she'd get mentioned once or twice and that was it, you know, yeah. people wanted to be, you know, they needed to, but, but also it, what I did with the book also was address a major lack because we'd gotten detailed looks at Klingon government, at Romulan government, yep. at Cardassian government, at Bajoran government. We'd never really gotten an in-depth look at the Federation government at all. It was always Starfleet. Um, right. That's the shows are about, you know, so, uh, and, and. You know, I got to change that with with articles, and um, and it's been the blueprint for how people have written the Federation government since then, which which is nice. Um, it's just it's it's nice to know that, and the book didn't really sell all that well, <laughs> um, but uh, but it's continued to have an impact, which I which I really appreciate. So, excellent, that's great. Baco was also patterned after my great grandmother, uh, who oh, died cool. in 2003. So, um, she was she was written at least partly as a tribute to her, and I think Nana would have been really. That's awesome. Yeah, that's fantastic. That's really great. Well, so uh, where can where can people find you online, and and what's coming up for you? What's next for you? Um, I you can find me online at my website at decandido.net, which is currently just basically a link dump, which will take you to my blog, my Facebook page, my Twitter feed, my Instagram, uh, the stuff I do for Tor.com, uh, the the podcast that I theoretically do. Uh, <laughs> I revived it this year and, and it didn't last very long. And I haven't been able to get back into it again. It's just life has been so busy. It, the podcast is called Dead Kitchen Radio. Yeah. I'm hoping to get it back up and running again. Um, we'll see. The But uh, decandido.net will lead you to all those places uh, as well as uh, how you can email. You can contact me through the site also. Um, I update my blog fairly regularly. I, I keep a pretty active Facebook presence uh, and somewhat on Twitter and Instagram as well. And uh, my most recent books include an orphan black coffee table book called Classified oh. Report, um, which is sort of a companion. Uh, it was released after the show's last episode, mainly because there are spoilers in it, because um, <laughs> it's complete up to the end of the show. And it's 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 a compilation of reports, emails, uh, letters, newspaper articles, texts, stuff. Uh, that was ostensibly collected by Delphine Cormier about the various clone projects and such on the show. So it serves as sort of a supplement to the show uh, for fans of it. And um, uh, the, Joe Books is about to release an omnibus of my three Marvel novels featuring Thor, Sif, and the Warriors 3. Uh, it was a, the trilogy was called Tales of Asgard, and that's what the omnibus is going to be called also. They're, re they're putting out the omnibus just in time for the release of uh, Thor Ragnarok. Oh, sure. Um, and uh, uh, I've got short stories in a bunch of different anthologies, including uh, Knights of the Living Dead, which was co-edited by Jonathan Mayberry and George Romero. It was actually the last project Romero completed before he died. Oh. And um, it's all stories that take place around the events of the original 68 film. 
and a great anthology. And I'm not just saying that because I'm a historian. It's, it's, it's a phenomenal anthology. Some of the great uh, masters of the zombie fiction field, uh, Mira Grant, John Skip, uh, Jay Bonansinga, uh, Craig Engler. Um, I'm blanking on all the other names in it, but uh, suffice it to say, there's a lot of, of heavy hitters in the zombie world uh, writing for this. Uh, I got to ask, with that, have you, did you work with George, uh, George A. Romero on that one? I mean, uh, yeah, I mean, he, I, not, I mostly worked with Jonathan because he's the one I have. Sure. I got a bunch of the connections with Jonathan, but, but George read all the stories and, oh. and got notes from him on it. And, uh, That's amazing. He loved it. Um, that would blow my mind. I, yeah. yeah. No, it wow. was, this was, this was one of the great honors of, uh, of my career. Uh, did you get asked to do that? Or did you pitch for it? Uh, Jonathan actually came to me because uh, I, I novelized um, the first three Resident Evil films. Oh yeah, yep. So um, I was I was considered worthy to be uh, <laughs> uh, part of it, and uh, of course that was what, there's at least one reviewer who used that as a club against it. Like, well, geez, they just got the guy who novelized a stupid Resident Evil film. Of Not course, like he's a real zombie. Game. Right. Uh, yeah. Me, 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 <laughs> me, and Chuck Wendig he hit with that because you know, oh Chuck gosh, Star Wars novel. Therefore, he is a hack. Oh, um, that's that's right. Yeah, he hasn't done anything else. That's right. No, no. Um. And uh, I've also got a couple of other anthologies, uh, Aliens, Bug Hunt, yep. uh, Baker Street Irregulars, uh, Volumes 1 and 2. One came out this year, two's out next year. Uh, Sherlock Holmes, Pastiche Stories, and, um, and some other stuff I'm, I'm forgetting. Oh, and I've got a story. There's a, a comic book anthology coming out from Comic Mix called Mine, which is a Planned Parenthood uh, benefit uh, comic book. Uh, Neil Gaiman, Jill Thompson, Mark Wade, Gail Simone, a whole bunch of real heavy hitters in the comics industry are doing stories for it. And I'm doing one as well. Um, and that'll be out uh, right around Christmas. And um, I think that's, and a bunch of other stuff. You can find me online and, and there's, there's stuff. You've got a few irons in the fire. It sounds like. Oh, yeah. <laughs> oh and I'm, I'm currently, my current, current things I'm working on that should be out sometime in the next uh, few months. Uh, a furnace sealed, which is an urban fantasy novel taking place uh, here in the Bronx where I live. Yeah. It's about a nice Jewish boy from the Bronx who hunts monsters. Nice. And, um, I like it. Uh, the latest in my precinct series of fantasy police procedurals called Mermaid Precinct, which uh, will be out by the end of the year as well. And, uh, and I'm working on some other stuff too. So uh, keep it busy. Very cool. Yes. Plus, my reviews of Star Trek Discovery show up every Monday morning after the new episode drops uh, yeah. on Tor.com. And I'm also doing the great superhero movie rewatch for Tor.com. We're yes. going through every live action adaptation of the comic book superhero. Uh, last week I did, last two weeks I did the uh, um, Tim Burton and Joel Schumacher uh, yeah. Batman films. And I'm going to be doing, this week is going to be the two uh, Incredible Hulk TV movies that led to the series uh, from the 70s. Hmm. And um, I'm going on from there. So. Man. Wow. Wow. Yeah. That's, you've got, yeah, some things going on. I'm, I, uh, yeah, I, I keep do. thinking I'm busy. Whoa. Yeah. <laughs> and also, I don't know when, when is this going to go live? We're, that's a good question. Chris, what are you thinking? Uh, some, somewhere within like the next week or so, I would imagine probably. Okay. Uh, the yeah. only reason I ask is some, uh, as we record this, uh, one week from, uh, today, I am going to be starting the process of going for my third degree black belt. Oh, oh, nice. So, awesome. Uh, and hopefully by the time that's over, which will be on October 22nd, I will be awarded with my new belt. Um, I also, I, I not only train, I also teach. Uh, I teach a couple of uh, after-school programs here in New York. 
uh, and teach a kid's fighting class at our dojo. And that, that also keeps me busy too. Wow. That's fantastic. That's, that's really amazing. A Renaissance man to be sure. That is that's awesome. That's great. I, 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 Renaissance is okay. They, they didn't have good plumbing then. So. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. That's right. That's it's true. <laughs> anyway, well, thank you guys for having me on. I really appreciate it. I can tell you, you know, it, it's really been, it's been a great, a great pleasure. It's been really fantastic to, to just hear you talk and to, to get into some, some deep cuts of Star Trek every once in a while. That's been, it's been fantastic. I appreciate that. Thank you. Thank you very much. All right. Thanks so much. We will, uh, yeah, we'll maybe we'll reach out and certainly we'll plug, um, right before this, uh, this happens. We'll, we'll let you know when this is dropping. Yeah, cool. absolutely. Yeah, definitely. By Thank way, you so you much guys, for your time. You guys may have a, an email at, at the Gmail address from my wife. Um, uh, oh, I saw something. Yeah. She took a picture of me sitting at the computer. Nice. Oh. So excellent. You mind if we, if we post that one when it yeah. comes out? Yeah. Sweet. That is fantastic. No, oh, we really do appreciate it, man. This is, this has been fantastic to oh, be able to just, uh, to, to pick your brain for a little while. And I, it's been fascinating. It really has been. Yeah. Well, maybe, maybe once the, the discovery season's over, uh, I can come back on and we can talk about the season in general. So. I would. Yes, we, that would be great. hundred percent. We would love that. Cool. Yeah. Excellent. All right. Well, All thanks right. so much and, and stay in touch. If, if, if you really, if truly, if there's something that comes up and you're just like, I got to talk about this, just let us know. We'll, we'll, we'll have you on. If you we'll want to do, do a, even a, a recap or something like that with us, it'd be cool. great. All right. Cool. All right. Talk to you thanks, later. Guys. Thank you very Take much. Care. Have a good night. You too. Well, that was our interview with Keith DeCandido. We hope you enjoyed it as much as we enjoyed having it. Let us know what you thought. Join in the conversation with us on Twitter. We are at The Next Trek on Twitter, and we are also on Facebook at The Next Trek Podcast. We'd love to hear from you. Send us your thoughts, your ideas, your opinions. Was Keith wrong about everything about Star Trek? Was he right about everything about Star Trek? Uh, or just any other random Star Trek-related thoughts that you might have? As always, thanks for listening, everybody. Live long and prosper. Prosper.